Hi there, I'm Mark Icero, and welcome to Article Club, where we read, annotate, and discuss one great article every month on race, education, or culture. Happy Sunday, everyone. This month, we've been focusing on Francesca Mari's outstanding piece, A Lonely Occupation, which was published in The New Yorker. It's about gentrification and the housing crisis in Los Angeles. And if you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend that you do. I'm also very happy to share with you that fellow article clubber Sarai and I got the chance to interview Ms. Mari a couple weeks ago. She was great and thoughtful and shared additional context to her piece, including how she met Augustus and what she thinks of Diane. Here's our conversation, and I hope you like it. Well, first of all, thank you so much for your article, and also thank you so much for being on Article Club. Thanks for having me. You write about inequality, abuses of power, and housing, and just wanted to get a sense of how did you get into housing specifically? So I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area originally, and then I was born in San Francisco and moved south of the city to a little town called El Granada when I was four and kind of grew up there and went to school in San Francisco and then went to the East Coast for college. And then I bopped around the East Coast and then was in Austin for several years. And I didn't return to San Francisco until 2016 to work at a magazine called the California Sunday Magazine. And so it was really my first time returning to the Bay Area as an adult. And so much had changed in terms of housing. And you can't live in San Francisco and not be interested in what's happening with housing. And so I worked at California Sunday for two years and I spent part of that time, about six months in LA. And there too, it's just such a critical issue. And, you know, part of me became interested for the very simple reason that like, I wanted to buy my own house at some point and that just wasn't an option in California for me. And I was just kind of flabbergasted and wanted to understand why. And so led me down that that path. Cool, thank you. Yeah, Sarai and I both used to work together in the Bay Area. I, were, I live in Oakland now and Sarai, you live in LA, so you know it as well. Yeah, I actually live um... I actually live with my parents right now. I mean, I have intentions on returning to the Bay, but similarly, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I can afford that. But right now where I'm staying, um, it's super close to one of the areas you mentioned in the um, article, which is Buena Park. I live in La Palma, which is right next to there. Yeah, and just like, yeah, kind of like going off of that, like, just ideas of like affluence and ideas of like the, the disparity of wealth. Like, it seems... It seems like super clear from your article that these it's becoming more and more and more um, of a gap between the ways that people are able to afford housing. Um, and I'm super interested to know, like specifically, like how did you how did you get in touch with um, with Augustus with um, Monson Lucille? Like I know you were kind of like walking around. I'm kind of like interested to know <laughs> how that went down. Like I mean, it was a true miracle in that I. I had been visiting this block for a little while because a foreclosure lawyer, i.e. a lawyer who specialized in handling the cases of those who had been wrongfully foreclosed upon or just foreclosed upon, lived in the middle of that block. And I had done, I had worked on another story previously about the rise of the single family rental empires that were backed by private equity and that sort of created new means of getting credit to buy more and more homes and then to de-gouge their tenants. Anyways, he, that foreclosure lawyer had been a source for that story. And I became very interested in his block because it just seemed to me like 
an epicenter of foreclosure. And so I was always kind of wandering around that block to see like where it stood and to observe all of these vacant properties in a city that has the lowest vacancy rate in the country. And it was just such a perplexing place. And so I noticed the home next to the foreclosure lawyer had been had gone through foreclosure and it, that process had taken a couple of years and that home had usually been unoccupied. But I noticed that there were sheets in the window and there were peanuts on the counter and water. And I was kind of curious, like, what's going on? Like, this, like I don't think a contractor would put sheets on the window. And so I kind of pressed my face against the window to look in and knocked. And the sweet Augustus, like, bless his heart, like, didn't bite my head off. Instead, he, you know, I, I didn't get a response. I continued down the street. And then, like, you know, um, 30 seconds to a minute later, I heard his voice behind me asking if he could help me and turned around. And I had no idea who he was, but he introduced himself as the house sitter. And then we just got to talking. And as a writer himself, he's one of these people who thinks of his story very much as a narrative and who had really, I mean, in part because of his incarceration, in part just because he is a natural storyteller, had really kind of refined his own story and was just so eager to share it. I think, I mean, I heard kind of the contours of his story the very first time I I met him. And I immediately said, that's amazing. I can I get your number? Can I talk to you more about this? Would you be interested in 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 being written about? And and he's very interested. That that's an amazing story because like it why, never happens like that. <laughs> no, yeah. Like, why do you feel like he trusted you? Especially, uh, like you're a random person wandering around houses on his block. I think he deals with so much worse when it comes to trespassing that, like me peeking, like because people are always like literally just breaking into the houses that he houses. So someone kind of like peeking into the window is probably like less threatening to him than than to most people. Though honestly, totally bizarre and unnerving what I was doing. I think. We had a lot of conversations about what it would mean to participate in the article and and the risks and benefits, because I was really concerned. And so like he he was interested, but the process was long and, and slow and not arduously so. It's just, you know, magazine journalism is always slow. And as a freelancer, I'm always kind of juggling multiple projects and kind of when I get interest or sign off from an editor can be really delayed. And so there was a lot of time for him to kind of reflect and learn who I was and judge me. But we did talk pretty straightforwardly about like, what if him speaking causes him to lose his job, which the job is exploitative. Like the woman who runs it is abusive. Like there are all sorts of problems with this job. Nevertheless, he loved it. Like he, it was a godsend for him. He um, did not want to lose this job. And I took that very seriously. And he was convinced that if he told the truth about what his job was and, you know, reflected honestly how much he appreciated it, that he would not get punished. And I was pretty skeptical of that because I did a bunch of research into the woman who owns the company. And I went to the courthouse. There's some stuff Because I did a lot of, because she wouldn't really talk to me, 
I did a lot of reporting that is not reflected in the piece to make sure everything that I was saying about her was accurate. So I actually went to the courthouse and I found judgments against her for back pay. So she had fired several house sitters, you know, very quickly and then didn't pay them for their work. And they sought judgments against her and won in court and never got their back pay. But because of those complaints, I got addresses and phone numbers and actually knocked on the doors and called some of these other house sitters. So I met like a fair number of house sitters who aren't even mentioned in the piece. And from them got varying accounts of the company and Diane. And so I was able to verify everything that Augustus said through those house sitters and also a couple of the ones that are mentioned in the piece. And so, yeah, anyways, I was skeptical, but you know, Augustus was right. And thank God he's still employed by Weekend Lawyers to this day. Wow. That's something like, that's definitely like, what you just said is a whole thing in and of itself. I definitely want to know more about this Diane person. Like, I definitely want to know, um, like about kind of, you have like a boldness and like a confidence about you, like knocking on doors and, and like calling people up and, and like, I'm, I'm wondering, like, is that, is that representative of your job as a reporter? Like, I, I just, I feel a boldness about you that I just want to know. Cause part of it, part of it is coming, if I'm being super honest, like I'm seeing like that you're able to go these places and do these things and that you, and it, you said unnerving and bizarre, but like, where did that come from? Like, how did you get the courage to just be like, uh, yep, I, you know? Um, and that's really kind of for me as a person trying to like build her own confidence. But um, it seems like the story, you were willing to kind of go places and do things that could have could have been potentially, you know, you know, like you said, you wanted to verify everything about Diane just in case or whatever. Like, where is that coming from? Where is this boldness as, as a reporter? Is it as a, you know, have you been doing it for a long time? Does presenting as a white person help? Like what, what, what's going on? Yeah, I, I won't diminish the fact that probably presenting as a white person or being white probably helps, which is complicated. I think it also probably doesn't help in certain situations, but in terms of like taking risks in certain communities or like legal risks, it probably helps. But it's not at all inherent to my nature to be bold or courageous. It's honestly a muscle that I had to develop. And it was just because I loved, I'm so curious about the world and I love my job and I love reporting and love listening to people and learning things. I hate imposing on people. I hate picking up the phone and making a cold call. Like to this day, I still have to pump myself up for that. I like don't love going to a courthouse. It's kind of a nuisance. But then once I'm there, I'm really into it, you know? So like a lot of the stuff, I mean, I've been doing it for more than 10 years now and I mean the first five years were miserable <laughs> like I would be so nervous on a phone call I would be quaking but you know once you do it in enough you become quite comfortable with it so I mean that's kind of the reassuring thing is that I do think that like anyone who's interested can can teach themselves to get over it and to just go forth yeah one thing that I noticed also is just your keen ability to notice and to listen. And just that scene with Augustus and his room 
and the diploma and the other pieces, the other details that you chose for your piece. It just really showed also your compassion and, and a way for you to get to know Augustus. Why do you think Augustus is the way that he is, even to the end the, of the piece where he's still hopeful? Yeah, well, thanks for, for, for the compliment. I do feel like I'm not the smartest reporter in the room, but I might be not the most patient, but I'm extremely patient. Like I pick stories where I enjoy spending time with people. And my method of reporting is literally just to be totally receptive and to just hang out and be my awkward self. Like I think about the questions that I'm seeking, but I really just follow where the conversation is going and follow what's interesting to me. And I do I trust my gut a lot. I guess this is so interesting because he's so wonderful and a great writer and very kind and compassionate. At the same time, he's a little bit, sometimes he's a little scheming or mischievous. Sometimes you want to shake him because his sense of reality is is so rose-colored. And I don't know what makes him who he is. I, I think it's just integral to who he is. Like I you know, it, this was what kind of came between him and his wife. When she first met him, she was so young and she really admired kind of like his interest and commitment to poetry. But as they had children and bills and so on, and he was still kind of living that dream, she kind of matured and outgrew him is, is how she explained it. And one of Augustus's best friends, Derek Stevens, who committed the bank robbery with him, who was actually a mastermind behind the bank robbery and was a fugitive and served very little time relative to Augustus, who served seven years, was trying to brainstorm ways that Augustus could use his poetry to make money. And one of his ideas was black holiday cards with like one little line of poetry. And Stevens was super excited about this idea, offered to give Augustus his printer, all the help he needed. And Augustus was kind of interested, but like Augustus is a dreamer and a purist, and he believes that he will be a star through his poetry alone. And that's his goal and that's his dream. And kind of everything else is just uh, a distraction. Like, I don't think he ever made those, those cards. Wow. It's... Like thinking about all of the things that he's done, like thinking about all the different things that he was involved in, it, it, it read for me that his like optimism is kind of, you know, something and like having dealt with this a little bit myself is like, we got to find a way to keep going. There just keeps things happening. Things keep happening and things keep occurring. It seems like he, you know, all the ideas he had, like his poetry venue fell to the cribs, you know, he wasn't supported in his other efforts, you know, and so this sustaining thing of poetry, it seems to be kind of like, a, like a set of armor. Um, and one of the things I was talking to Mark about is like, had he been supported or had he been had there been institutional supports for him as opposed to institutional barriers? Um, I feel like the purist in him and the dreamer in him, that's like, those are visionary qualities. Those are like idealists, you know, those are things that the world needs. And so one of the things that was super interesting to, to just understand about him is that even though he's aware of the exploitation, like what he's doing affords him the time to do, it seems what he needs to do. Um, and that, you know, sometimes it's super easy for me to be like, oh my God, you're being exploited or, oh my God, you don't, you don't have to put up with this. But reading this, I really had to take a step back and say, you know, cause Mansa Musa El had kind of a different approach to it. He was still working, but he had kind of a different mentality. Um, and that I think happens for folks 
even though we, though we may be marginalized for folks with, with, with privileges that he didn't have, like it's easy for us to say, you're being exploited, you should leave, or you're being exploited as opposed to maybe going for Diane or going for Westwood directly. Like it's easy for us to blame the people that are being exploited um, for their decision-making, right? As opposed to kind of seeing who pulls the strings. And I wonder both with Diane and the Westwood companies, I wonder like what you think their narrative narrative is. I know you said you did some research on Diane and was able to like, is she, does she think she's helping? Does she not care? Like what's going on? Yeah. Well, first of all, I really appreciate the nuance with which you read the story. Cause I agree. Like the reason why I wanted to reflect both Musa and Augustus's experiences to show the varied ways in which people experience that job. Diane, as far as I can tell, I should probably be somewhat reserved in what I say since she can't respond, but I think she's a business lady and, you know, she's not paying, she claims to have zero employees. She's not paying taxes. It's all under the table. She denied knowledge of any of the house sitters that I spoke with. And after the fact checker hung up the phone with her, after telling her that one of the house sitters I had spoken to was Augustus, she immediately called Augustus and chewed him out for talking to me. When we called Wedgwood, Wedgwood actually took complete ownership of the idea and said that it was the CEO's, I believe the CEO or someone high up in the company's idea very many years ago, and that the idea was to help the unhoused. Whether one believes that or not, I, I don't know. I just, I, that was actually the fact checker who got that out of Wedgwood because Wedgwood had stopped responding to me. We're just processing that. Jump like, in, that Mark, because I have hella work. Yeah. I have, I have every question. Like, you gotta yeah, jump that, in. There, yeah, there's a what lot. What I would say is that it's very economical for them to do what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think that what I wanted to wanted to ask is that you made those choices to focus on Musa as well as Augustus rather than spending more time in your piece around these other institutional layers as well. And sort of wanted to ask you why specifically stylistically, obviously all pieces you have to edit, but in particular, Sarai and I really loved the addition of Musa in contrast, obviously, to Augustus. Can you share a little bit about some of your choices about including him, as well as what you were trying to do toward the end of the piece, where you just sort of like lay it on thick. You're like, this is happening, and it's almost intractable at this point. Yeah, so there were, in my very first draft, I included Musa, and then I also included a couple other house sitters. I think Michael Lynn, or I'm not sure of his name, but I think there's another house sitter who's briefly in there talking about his empathy for the family he had to kick out and how he admires the, the way that they renovate their properties. So he's in there just a tiny, tiny bit, but there have been several other house sitters who I had highlighted because I wanted to show what people were up against. And of course, I wanted Musa's voice in there in part because he's such a colorful speaker and was such a fun guy to meet and also like loathe the company. I thought his perspective was necessary and was like very keenly aware of and bothered by the oppressive nature of the gig, whereas Augustus was more appreciative and accepting of it. The other, so like there was a house sitter who had to sort of fight off gang for a week and they were stealing stuff from him and he ended up going and 
there was another house sitter who was undocumented and he was sort of acknowledging like, yeah, I don't like what I'm doing. Like, I think it's unethical to work for these companies, but if you want to make money, you have to work for the people who have money and that's just how it is. And I found that so poignant. But the truth is between Augustus and Musa, I think you get the spectrum of experience and the reader can only hold so many characters in his or her mind. And so I'm. it's nice to hear from you guys that you like the edition of Musa because as a writer, it's weird because it's easier to write about only one person. And yet my instinct as a writer is always to include all of the people that I've interviewed because they're so interesting. And yet for the reader, readers often like consistency and they want just that to follow that one person and adding a second person can sometimes be an irritation to the reader. So so I'm glad that you didn't find that to be the case. I also thought it was interesting because Musa being born in South LA, his life trajectory mirrored sort of the history of disinvestment in that community. And so through him, I could tell like the broader historical picture, which I like. So instead of just having to do like a straight up context section, I kind of used him to frame that history. We got to see a lot of different things. Like we got to see the ways that disinvestment caused Compton. Like coming from if, anytime you hear the word Compton, nobody thinks of white people when you say Compton. Nobody does. But that it was a, a white, it was a white town. And that's the case with a lot of these places that are now like Jackson, Mississippi, you know, even even um, even places in the Bay Area. Like now, now that Black people are living here, we're on this gentrification kick to where it's like it's possible for cyclical like disinvestment to occur, like once again, or cyclical investment. And I and I I was super interested because one of the things, kind of going back to what I was saying before, is that the breadcrumbing that happens, like the the kind of like trickle down, like you can. You can have you can have some of this you know like you can have this and we'll string you along like mark and i were talking about how augustus kind of even though he could be unhoused at any moment he kind of like identified with having a home because he was able to say i identify with the homeless and mark actually i should let you ask this question man <laughs> because you you said this but the fact that he now does not necessarily identify as a homeless person he can identify with homeless people like that's like a kind of a he's kind of elevating himself in a society, like not to, not to, not to put people in like order or whatever, but he, he does not necessarily think that he is a part of that population anymore. Um, and the way that the other person was using the term, I like the way we renovate our houses. I like the way we do this. So people can all of a sudden see themselves as a part of this group that's exploiting others, um, but not maybe not necessarily see themselves as exploiting. Or not necessarily, and so like as people do that, and as people are able to rise socioeconomically, I think that happens is where people begin more to identify with the exploitative group than the group that's being exploited. Um, and I wonder because your piece definitely it definitely talks about the cyclical nature. Like I wonder what what you think the future of like weekend warriors is. Do you do you do you see like Augustus becoming, you know, Diane? Like do you see like do, what do you see? Am I making sense? Like, yeah, yeah, no, it's so perceptive of you guys to have noticed the, the, we like the way we renovate houses, that, that, the use of that pronoun. And right, it's hard if you've ever like house sat a house for a while or like occupied a space that's like in a position of power, like 
it's hard not to kind of like assume that space. Like I'm just thinking of like when I house sat in LA for a friend who has a gorgeous, like in my mind, mansion, maybe it's not actually a mansion, but a very large house. And after being there for several months, like I envisioned, like it felt like my house, even though it was not my house at all. <laughs> Could never have that house. But but likewise, like when like Augustus, he really always kind of thinks of these properties as his and he takes a pride in them when they're nice. And so did Michael Lindsay. And, but I don't think Augustus has referred many people to weekend warriors, including like an unhoused woman that he just met at a McDonald's where he used to go for his morning coffee and where she used to go for her morning bath, essentially. And she had escaped domestic violence and she then went on to work for the company for several years. So, you know, it did provide opportunities for, for some people because there's literally, because Diane does not meet the people that she's employing because she really doesn't seem to give two craps about them or how how they might work it also the flip side the silver lining is that it means that she gives a chance to a tremendous number of people who wouldn't have a chance otherwise and so sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't but you know the flip side is if she then fires them or puts them in really dangerous situations they have no recourse so there are two sides to that now could augustus i can't see him ever He's a dreamer and I can't quite see him falling through on establishing like a house sitting empire like Diane's. Like there's something sort of cut through and Diane's just like very on top of it. Like she's she might not do things by the book, but she's, you know, controlling everything that's going on. And I don't know that that's Augustus's nature necessarily. I think like the mindset kind of like, I don't know. I th- I have to go back and read your article again because I just like I feel like there's so many there's so many different things here there's so many different ways because I just worry about like because because like we were talking about you they couldn't comment or Diane couldn't comment it's like they could comment like they could but they would be exposing themselves and like what like how do we expose because because um Moms for Housing in Oakland went up against these folks in one so like how much how much would exposure of what these folks doing like is that what we would want like would would the week folks working for weekend warriors like lose their jobs like what would happen you know like and who are we sacrifice who would we be sacrificing to to take down like diane or take down westwood that's something i've thought a lot about because every kind of you know when i was researching on the state of the housing crisis in la and homelessness and so on when i was talking to you know the head of the housing authority or clearly any or the head of loss or like just people in positions of power i would always ask hey i'm writing about this unhoused house sitter who may lose his job if his boss is angry about the piece and he's been doing this for you know eight years or whatever and he might become homeless like what are the resources for him and essentially for someone like Augustus who's mentally sound who hasn't been the term is literally homeless which means like you're not considered like literally homeless unless you're sleeping on the street he and he doesn't have like some horrific like chronic disease there's there's nothing for him like he's a senior but like the list for senior housing is five ten years long like he so it was a real concern for me I had to ask myself all right is it more important for me because
is my instinct is also like oh like this company is totally exploiting these people it's so screwed up but i had to ask myself is the problem more with this company or is it the larger systemic forces that have created this gross housing inequality and the wealth gap between white white people and black people that is primarily driven by racist housing policy and compounded over decades and exacerbated by the continued financialization of housing. That to me was the bigger problem. And, you know, legislators, progressive ones know about this. So the issue to me is and is trying to educate or like get readers to care, to engender the political will for, for people to care and want to empower the politicians who are interested in in making these changes and going after this one group it seemed to me had you know it it had as many risks risks as it had benefits to my mind because weekend warriors isn't the problem problem so much as the sort of advantages in credit and tax advantages and so on given to these flipping companies or to LLCs or to private equity companies and the way in which like our law favors corporations over individuals and the ways in which we have not made sufficient amends for racist housing policy. And so where I landed with that, and that's why I didn't include some of this like more aggressive stuff against weekend warriors. I mean, honestly, part of it was literally wanting to protect the people who genuinely appreciated it because the alternative was terrible. And that's depressing. It's depressing to me that there's no better alternative. But I mean, it also has to be said that for someone like Augustus, it's not only housing, it's a sense of purpose and pride. Like it gives him pride to know that he's a good house sitter. Thank you so much for that. I really, I really appreciate your insight and thinking about that. And it sort of leads to maybe maybe a last question, if that's okay, which is we're going to be meeting in a couple of weeks and enthusiastically talking about your article. And we go deep, we sort of like get into it and it's quite exciting. And I think one thing that Sarai and I wanted to ask you is, is that piece about what do you want your reader to do? Do you have a message for us going into our discussion? What do you want us to be talking about? And what do you want us to be doing? Oh man, gosh, there's so much. I need to kind of collect my thoughts and organize them. One is that we need zoning reform. I really believe that, and this is sort of controversial among advocacy groups because Some are just most invested in wanting to protect the most vulnerable. I totally get that. And I think we need to protect the most vulnerable. I also think that we critically need to build more and that the homelessness crisis is a direct result of the housing supply crisis until we increase building. And I mean, I mean, both for-profit and non-profit building, we're not going to scratch the surface of homelessness. So I strongly support, I can't remember what is going by now, but Scott Wiener's proposal to upzone around transportation hubs. I think that that's critically important. I also think that there needs to be tax reform that is more fair to renters and homeowners because right now there's a huge tax advantage for homeowners. And in California, as you know, there's Prop 13, which artificially freezes property income taxes and disincentivizes growth or upbuilding. So like LA fortunately like allowed the building of granny units a year or two ago or whatnot. And that's created a lot more housing stock because people want to 
build granny units to increase the cash flow on their property and that creates more housing. We just need to attack the creation of housing from all fronts. There needs to be more public housing. It needs to not be stigmatized. And the reason it's stigmatized is because all investment investment and funds were pulled from it. So, you know, and that's conservative neoliberal policies, but public housing initiated as housing for returning vets from World War II. There's such an influx of people. And then the baby boomer generation that we needed to create housing and the government did successfully. And, you know, that was much valued housing for a little while. And it was starter housing for people to save up money to then buy a house. But of course, like all of the kind of incredible policies that made homeownership more accessible to the middle class after the Great Depression were only available to white people. And so there's just a gross housing inequality that's been compounded over generations that we need to address too. And I think, you know, some form of reparation is essential. I know that there's something else, there's like a third tier. I know I can break my kind of beliefs into three tiers and I've only covered zoning and taxation and there's a third one, but I'm kind of blanking out right now. So I might need to go back to you, but. No, thank you. Thank you so much. That was a lot. Yeah. So thank you for that. Sarai, you have any other questions at this time? No, I just super appreciate the conversation and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading this article again and like discussing it further. I have so many, so many thoughts. Like, (laughs) Well, thank you so much. In case it's helpful, I'll mention, I think are you guys familiar with Neiman's Storyboard? It's a cool resource that you guys might enjoy for Article Club. It's like, I, it asks authors to annotate their articles. And so someone will ask you a bunch of questions in your article and then the author will annotate it. So like my favorite authors like Pam Koloth or Rachel Aviv have annotated kind of their stories and they're running an annotation of, or they had me annotate this story I think it's coming out in in a week or so. I'm not sure, but that might, if you have other questions, that might end up answering them or just be fun. But it's definitely a great resource just for other articles. I love it. That's great. Yeah, we actually do an annotation also, like (laughs) optionally. And so just to have the author too. Yeah, we're going to check that out. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, absolutely. That's cool. And thanks so, thank you so much again for just sharing all of your thoughts about it and also your approach to this piece. Um, super excited to talk to you and really, really grateful. So thank you so much for your time. No, likewise. Thanks for reading it so carefully and for your thoughtful questions and, and comments. I really appreciate it. Like uh, every writer's dream is to have readers like you guys. Thank you for listening, and most of all, Sarai and I would like to thank Ms. Mari for a thoughtful and generous conversation. If you're new to Article Club and want to learn more, check out articleclub.org or email me at mark at highlighter.cc. Have a great week.